American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And we are lovers. Oh, stop! Private, it. secret lovers. All right. Stop. <laughs> and we are history for jerks. Yeah. And we uh, do a podcast. All right. And about we have true crime. A special guest and today. Pop culture, and history, and we do. We have a special guest. Uh, you may have heard just now at the beginning of this podcast, and you probably, if you've listened before, you hear at the end of the podcast too, that we are part of a network. We are part of the Queen City Podcast Network. And you may think to yourself, what the hell network would let you guys in? Well, you're about to find out because our <laughs> guest this week is the creator and the the master designer and the guy in charge of the network. Please welcome Brian Baltashevitz. Hey guys, I'm actually rethinking uh, your involvement in this. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is good. How are you guys? This is good. like he's like all of a sudden. Uh, this is really an interview to make yeah, to see oh, if this you'll is still podcast? be on the pod on oh, the network. I thought it was, totally thought it was something else. I didn't know you guys were idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he knew we're idiots. He's heard our po- he's he's uh, done our he produced our live show. Um, That's right. So he heard at least one episode. That's right. I yeah. knew I knew what I was getting into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody to blame but myself. Yes. Yeah, so Brian Baltashevitz is a big deal in Charlotte. Um, uh, we met at Comedy Zone when he produced a show called Funny on the Fly, where comedians got up and just kind of had to do stand-up on the fly based on topics he gave you. And then I found out he had years of broadcasting experience, and then he ran the Comedy Zone podcast. And then at that time, he was getting ready to start the Queen City Podcast Network, a hyper-local podcast network. Brian, tell us about it, uh, the origins of it, what it is, and and why it's important uh, to have a network. Uh, Sure. So the uh, Queen City Podcast uh, network is a hyper local collection of, of um, podcasts. We are now up to, as of this recording, we are up to 32, uh, I'm sorry, 31. Wow. 31. We are on wow. the verge of launching a new one that's a big secret that I'm actually very um, excited about. Ooh. But I can't say anything until. Oh, wow. But, Ooh, love it. But, boo. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, so 31 all uh, produced here in Charlotte, most of which are actually produced by the network itself. Wow. And a few uh, strategic partnerships such as yourself, yes. such as uh, Charlotte Center City Partners and Blumenthal Performing Arts and yes. uh, places like that. Um, and it's basically, it's, it, it's, uh, it's an idea that I've always kind of thought had legs, the idea of a... Of a um, um, a hyper local uh, podcast network. Um, everybody launches their podcast, and they want them to have a global footprint. They want to have millions of listeners, and and I always kind of thought that you didn't necessarily have to do that to be successful, depending on how you how you define success for your podcast. Yeah. And uh, so uh, March of 2018, we 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 brought five local podcasts together, and all we did was cross promote each other, and everybody's numbers kind of spiked. And uh, we added a few more, and everybody's numbers continue to spike. One of uh, the podcasts, their numbers tripled. Wow! The first few wow, that's podcasts. awesome. 
And um, and then I, w- I was approached by Ortho Carolina, who said, how can we get involved? And I said, I don't know, because it's way earlier than I thought yeah. anything like yeah. that would happen. Yeah, that is yeah. really cool. Yeah, and so then we are now in our in our third year under the uh, title sponsorship with um, Ortho Carolina in our uh, partnership with them. So the uh, Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina, now three years old, which is crazy talk. That's yes. cool. Yes, uh, yeah. I love yeah. it. And it just uh, continues to grow. Yeah, I think we were like number seven or eight or something like that. We were like in the top, yeah. in the first 10, I think, because we... You were, yeah, you were kind of part of that first sort of grand experiment. Yeah, we were starting right as you and I was like, hey, can we get in? Little <laughs> do I know that, did I realize that how new we were, like now I'm realizing, boy, that yeah. was had some yeah. balls to really ask that early on, because I did have, we didn't <laughs> we have didn't hardly have any episode. we didn't know what we were doing. We were both stoned. I mean, it uh, was wait like... Wait a minute. <laughs> No, but it was, yeah, it was early on. and But now I feel like, like, I just now feel like I'm knowing what I'm doing. And I, we've been doing it for three years. And so yeah. it's it's weird how you think you know, and then you realize you don't know. And then, you know, how much I learned just editing and everything. Like, I, I lear- I've learned stuff this, these last two months, I've learned stuff in my editing software that I didn't know I could do. Uh, but now I can, like, isolate background noise and take it out. Uh, all kinds of things I never knew how to do before. Um, but yeah, so it's just, and, and then I'm, I was just thinking when you were talking about the network, you know, think about television studios, like not everything is a nationally recognized show. You know, why not have a local network? Cause TV is like that. There's local television, you know, that does fine. Right. So, um, anyway, all, all that mess just to say that sentence. Uh, I, wouldn't, so. I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say local television does fine. You don't think it does? No, I, I think it struggles a lot. Oh, does it? Yeah. I think it struggles for viewers and, you know, people, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's, there seem to always be in business. I mean, I mean, it seem, it's like the small town newspaper. It seems like to yeah. me. Yeah. I guess some of that yeah, is good. I, yeah. Uh, 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 local television isn't, isn't adapting to the audience's needs, right? Like local yeah. television is still operating on the, you know, three and a half hour morning show, the noon, the four, the five, the six, the seven, when nobody's home watching TV. Right. Uh, yeah. And then the 11, which is now too late for most people to stay up. So local television needs to adapt. But it's funny because, like, when the internet started, newspapers didn't adapt because they assumed everyone would, would always want to read the newspaper. And yeah. Then, yeah. you know, what happened, the newspapers happened, and then radio laughed at newspapers and said, oh, well, that'll never happen to us because yeah. everyone is always going to want to listen to the radio. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And then, and then you know, now radio's in the tank. And oh, God, I can't. Go, ha, ha. <laughs> I, can't ama- I can't remember the last time that I w- listened to the radio. Well, NPR. He listened to NPR. He, with, whenever I'm in the car with you, but I never do on my own. Oh, really? Yeah, because podcasts, right? podcasts. I, I mean, listen I li- to podcasts all I the listen time. to NPR podcasts more than I listen right. to NPR. Um, but yeah, and that's an example NPR is kind of forcing to adapt. I mean, they have yeah, a lot of podcasts. And, you know, you would think somewhere along the way, television or radio would have seen what happened to the the industries before them and went, oh, let's not let that happen to us. But it hasn't happened. And <laughs> television is getting beaten up by the internet. And it's just. Yeah. Crazy. Well, in a way, you can kind of <laughs> put a nail in local local TV and radios <laughs> pot and net coffins like ah oh, the local network can take a lot of that thanks you, know. you. well and it is it's a lot like too podcasts are really fascinating to me too cuz like YouTube and podcasts are a lot more similar cuz it's just anybody can do it now everybody gets a right. platform everybody can have a show 
Uh, so pretty soon it's just going to – I kind of feel like it's going to do away with all the big entertainment companies because, I mean, still, if you got a lot of money, you can do something great. You have stuff like Marvel, which is what we talk about in the Nerd School podcast. Like Marvel is so much better better than anything Mm -hmm. but if you compare like the cw has all these dc shows they're just not good they can't compete with marvel so if you got a lot of money you can get the best talent you're going to be great but now it's like anybody can have a network like we there's some local comedians talking about starting their own doing their own comedy specials like filming their own specials and putting them on their own comedy networks like their own netflix i can't get on netflix i'm making my own streaming platform yeah absolutely and people will find them so like it we're just in this media is like it's like a revolution yeah it's an enlightenment or something it's like yeah it's a big change a renaissance yeah it's like a big bang of media you know so um yeah I think pretty soon it'll be like, <laughs> it used to be your Facebook. Like, check out my MySpace page. Now just check out my podcast. Check out my YouTube channel. Oh, you didn't? You don't know what's going on with me? Check out my YouTube channel. Like, everybody will have one. Oh, God. That would be, that, <laughs> that's like a getting... Black Mirror episode. <laughs> oh, can you imagine how, like, people can't even be bothered to, like, call each other on the phone anymore. Can well, you remember imagine it... asking somebody to watch a video of you? Well, for a long time, it was always like, like every day? a business or a, a a a company wasn't legit if they didn't have a website. Or a comedian was like that too. Yeah, like you're you're not a real comedian. You don't even have a website. You're not a comedian or yeah or a business. But now it's going to be you don't even have a YouTube show. Like you don't have a podcast. <laughs> like a comedian right. won't be anybody. What's your podcast? It'll yeah. be just your. I mean, that'll be everybody. In I'd the, say at not least just comedians. I'd say at least half of the comedians that we book at our theater are have a podcast yeah if not more you know it's like what's their podcast so So, anyway anyway we are going to uh dive in to 1951 back into yeah we were two months in uh we're into march and we took that little detour a couple episodes ago and went to scotland with our scotland friends our scottish friends but we are in yeah we dropped we finished february but I had a little thing, if you remember the last episode, I kind of dipped my toe into something that kind of started at the end of February, but it goes into March, so I'm going to continue on with this and go a deep dive into this. Okay. Um, the Senate committee report into the U.S. crime syndicates. Oh. Uh, one of the first times I think the the Senate the Senate got involved in U, uh, the crime the syndicate, the mafia. So the origins of this were in 1949, the American Municipal Association, representing more than 10,000 cities nationwide, petitioned the federal government to combat the growing influence of organized crime. And so if you're like me, I picture the 50s as all like, ah, see, organized crime, yeah, see, everybody with, you know, Gatlin guns and all that stuff. So um, No, that's more 40s. Is it more 40s? Well, this is the 1949 is when they did this. 40s, And then 50, yeah, I guess 50s maybe is phasing out, but... The first-term Senator Estes Kefauver, Kefauver of Tennessee. Have you ever heard that name, the Kefauver, no. the Kefauver Committee? Um, it's kind of well-known. You hear it a lot through if you really delve into organized crime. Uh, but he was from Tennessee, and he drafted a resolution to create a special committee to investigate organized crime in America. Uh, United States of America. During the course of the 15-month investigation, the committee met in 14 major U.S. cities and mm-hmm. interviewed hundreds of witnesses in open and executive session. Uh, building upon the earlier work of state crime commissions, Gafavre directed committee staff to examine what he called the lifeblood of organized crime 
interstate gambling. Like that's the biggest mm. one. Um, and so it meant that Kefauver and his colleagues first focused on urban areas, the strongholds of both gangsters and Democrats. And at the time, mm. this is also in that time, we've been talking a lot about how the, the Democratic the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are sort of in the middle of this shift. Like they kind of changed policies. Like one right. was liberal and one was conservative, and now the conservatives and liberals are kind of changing parties at this time, which is kind of which is fascinating to me anyway. But this guy, yeah. Kefauver, is a Democrat, and so he kind of got a lot of shit from his fellow Democrats because he decided to look at this uh, bipartisanly, and like even mm-hmm. if the Democrats are involved, he's going to call them out. And it was mostly Democrats that were involved in organized crime during this. Um, so despite the potential cost to his party, he pledged to lead a no stones unturned, no holds barred, right down the middle of the road, let the chips fall where they may inquiry. This is all according to Senate.gov. There's a report on the website. Okay. Uh, the committee launched its investigation in Miami and found evidence of gambling everywhere, from restaurants to cigar stands. The committee traced one bookmaking syndicate's political connections all the way to Florida Governor Fuller Warren, a Democrat. Warren accused Kefauver of uh, being an ambition-crazed Caesar who is trying to die, trying desperately and futilely to be a presidential candidate. Um, hmm. That This whole thing ended up being Warren's political downfall. Uh, uh, they did something in Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City was struggling uh, from under the rule of the law of the jungle, according to Kofalver. In Chicago, the committee heard testimony from gangsters who confessed to using legitimate business interests to curry favor with local law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Revelations of bribery and illegal gambling among Chicago, the city's police force drew intense security from the mayor. Yeah, Chicago cops they're, are so corrupt. They're, oh my god, they're historically they're corrupt. We yeah. would hear it was like weekly news, like oh these two cops were caught shaking down Polish immigrants, or oh these two cops hit a stripper, and like it was it was nonstop in the early two thousands. I'm 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 guessing it's probably still like that, but it what. I remember that was one of the first things we noticed when moving there. It was like, geez, are the cops just, <laughs> the cops are so just crime bad here. here? Yeah. So, but Chicago, I think, is famous for that. Yeah. Um, the Chicago investigation connected top officials, most of whom were members of the Democratic Party, again with corrupt practices. Many Illinois Democrats lost their reelection bids in that year's midterm elections uh, due to this committee report. That's uh, what I wish would happen now, including Senate Majority Leader Scott Lucas, but with the opposite party. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, Scott Lucas tried to, he tried to uh, stop the investigation. He tried to, like, throw wrenches in in it. Um, uh, And public interest in the Kefauver inquiry peaked in March of 1951, where we are now, when the committee convened hearings in New York City and millions of Americans watched the live broadcast. So this is one of the first times they had actual live broadcasts of of these kind of things mm-hmm. too. So the whole trial, the whole country watched this trial because television was new, right? You know, and so the news was new. Everything was new on, to see on TV. Um, what well, I was going to say, if you think about, if there wasn't Netflix, there wasn't no any other channels, even. right? Every network probably carried it, so there's literally nothing else to see on TV. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're going to listen to the radio, or you're going to you're going to listen to my radio show about aliens, or we're going to you're going to watch the one. We're going to watch the one channel, and and yeah. everybody watched TV because it was like. Yeah. Yes. Groundbreaking! Imagine it being groundbreaking. Like we can see what's happening in New York right now, yeah. live. Like it blew everybody's minds. I imagine so. <clears throat> viewers watched in amazement as a faction of individuals representing the underworld of interstate bookmaking and gambling interests offered details of their sordid business arrangements. Wow. Kefauver studied. 
he studied and balanced. It's his, so weird that the mobsters turn, flipped like that. Well, and everybody, Kefauver became famous because right. everybody's watching. The first guy you watch on TV kind of do, yeah. investigating something. Um, so all Americans knew him. And then television viewers were riveted in part by the cast of her- characters called to testify before the committee. Particularly dramatic was testimony by Frank Costello. Crime commissions across the nation had identified Costello as a key figure in the nation's largest gambling syndicates. Testify, testifying before the committee in New York... Costello, with his well-coiffed hair and tailored suits, came to personify the American gangster in public imagination. Mm. You think about it, this was your first, most people's first stereotype of mm-hmm. a gangster. You know, like right. like we didn't have, we probably didn't have that thought. Maybe they knew it, but um, it's kind of neat. Everybody saw him. Um, when his legal counsel objected to the television cameras, cameramen then in, uh, directed their devices at Costello's hands because uh, they got all mad and said, stop showing them. So they just showed his hands. And during an intense period of questioning by Rudolph Halley, Costello's hands twisted and clenched, according to one account, revealing his inner fears and confusion. Costello mumbled incoherent answers, became belligerent, refused to answer questions, and twice left the witness table without being dismissed. Americans were fascinated by the spectacle of of a mob boss under duress. God, I wish that would happen to Trump. Yeah, what's oh, amazing? Oh my God! Uh, the committee later cited him for contempt, and he served jail time. Even if you could just see Trump's hands, wouldn't it be oh, his tiny, tiny God. baby hands? And <laughs> then, <laughs> and then just watch him implode. Sweat. Like, every, like watch yeah. him cr- cry and do all that stuff. Yeah, throw up and whatever, run out. Oh. But yeah, he'll never face any consequences. Um, in addition to Costello. Uh, Virginia Hill, former girlfriend of criminal mastermind Bugsy Siegel, testified to having had no knowledge of criminal activities he on the writes. company of notorious mobsters. She was antagonized by the press, and she would she'd kick and kick and slap journalists on her way out of the hearing room, all caught on live television. Wow! I looked her up on YouTube, and you can see there's all this video of her B-roll footage of her like you know pushing through cameras and stuff, and it's just <laughs> fascinating. And she's dressed like. Obviously, she's dressed like, a, like the '50s as she would, but she's got a big hat and like oh, fur like coat a gangst- and yeah, gangster girlfriend. Yeah, mall. Are they call them malls or I mean, it looks like a movie. Or? If you watch footage of her, it looks like those gangster movies that we've all seen. Right, like fighting her way out of the Senate. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, at the end of this, there was a lot more, but uh, people that were investigating things, but they they uh, not much really came out of it though. Um, more than anything, um, the hearings demonstrated that some elected officials officials had facilitated and profited from criminal activities and kind of took down their careers but generally they didn't go to jail uh i don't think i think more than anything they were just disgraced and lost their elections and things um but these dramatic hearings did make certain that television from now on would play a large role in future senate investigations i bet so it was kind of the first one at all people are into this yeah so um so that was that whole thing. And that brings us to Saturday, March 3rd, 1951, when a gentleman named Bill Milkfee. You ever hear of Bill Milkfee, Brian? Uh, the great uh, Bill uh, Milkfee from the New Hampshire Milkfees. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he scored. Uh, he scored. He played. He was a basketball player from Temple. He scored an NCAA basketball record 73 points. Um, that's a ton of points in one game. I know you had to say that part for you, but yes, yeah, I know. You wouldn't know. I mean, that's a ton of points. Is that a lot of points? Especially, in I'm 19- just sitting like, here like Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain, like the greatest basketball player of all time, scored 100 points in a game in the NBA. But Bill Milkvie, in an interview I found, 
points out that they play 10 minutes longer uh, games. Uh, at least they did then when he, so he was like, give me 10 more minutes. I would have scored a hundred. Uh, <laughs> but milk V is a white guy. He scored, he scored 50. What? Yeah. He's, he's this tall old. And the interview I found with him, he's like a million years old. Uh, of course, 51, he's doing this. He scored 50 at one point. He scored 54 unanswered points for temple. Nice. Like no, none of his teammates scored at all during that time. Oh, uh, my. and, uh, so he established that NCAA record that holds to this day. The Owls won 99 to 69 that night, but on paper, the visiting small forward could have done it alone because he scored 73 points himself. So he outscored the other team 73 to wow, 69. Wow, that's himself. pretty impressive. He was six foot four, and he was nicknamed the Owl without a vowel because Bill Milkvy is spelled M L K V Y. Uh, oh really? Yeah, and Bill, a little bit about Bill Milkvy. His parents, John and Margaret, migrated to the U.S. in 1907 pr- from present-day Slovakia uh, when his dad got a job with a New Jersey zinc company. And he said, "I started playing basketball at four. I can't tell you how hard I worked at it." An older brother, one of his seven siblings, would blindfold young Bill and have him shoot from different spots on the court. From that exercise, he learned the ball was shot with one's entire body, not just arms and fingers. The basket at the local park that he played in had no net, and he'd been playing about four years before he joined a team that had a net, he remembered. Um, and so, yeah, he played that whole season. And here's the thing. About 1951, uh, he finished the season not only leading the nation in scoring 30 points a game, but also second in rebounds and assists, all stats he was completely ignorant of mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't – there was no – that wasn't the news – reporting the stats there was not they barely even kept books like they didn't even oh. know like mm-hmm. they did keep them but it wasn't like they shared it with other schools or anything um yeah ncaa basketball then was not what it is now it's yeah. nothing to it's yeah people hardly anybody watched i think but um but yeah so and he and the owls they bust two hours north of this game to wilkes bar pennsylvania uh which was a Division One school at the time, and gave him an opportunity to play in front of his sister Lillian, then a student nearby Blooms- Bloomsburg State Teachers College. Um, according to Milkvy, Lillian organized a busload of students to come to watch him play. Um, and here's the funny thing about him: like he he was at Temple for dental school. Uh, even after that game, he uh, it still didn't even make the paper. Even not even the local okay. the Temple the school newspaper didn't even make the paper. Bill Milkvy made it in the paper for losing his pen. He made it to the front page the next day because oh. he lost his pen, and it was a very important pen to him, but not about the game. Uh, <laughs> but he was drafted by the Philadelphia Warriors, now the Golden State Warriors. Um, but he only played one season because after being drafted, um, he continued dental school. He wasn't done, so he he was in dental school and still played professional basketball with the Warriors. And after his rookie season, the Warriors general manager and coach Eddie Gottlieb made Milkvy choose between dental school and basketball. He was going to choose basketball, but he changed course when he was informed that he would be drafted into the U.S. Army as a private if he was no longer enrolled in school. Oh. But if he finished school, then he would be drafted as a dental officer. So he, so he was like, ah, I'm staying in dental school then. Uh, so this unbelievable guy who holds this unbelievable record, oh, man. he became a dentist instead. Um, but while he was playing for Temple and scoring all these points, he was like really invested in dental school. Like He would finish pulling somebody's teeth like an hour before the game and then go to the game and play all these games. It's like unheard of today's, mm-hmm. you know, today's world. Um, who, um, Joe, who was the opponent? 
Oh, Wilkes. They scored the seventy-three. Wilkes Bar, I think, is the name of the team. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the teacher because the teacher. If it was the teacher's college, that makes a certain amount of sense. No, it wasn't the teacher's college. It was. Uh, no, that's okay. It was. <laughs> I know. It was. Oh, it was Wilkes College in Wilk, Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. Wilkes, Wilkes College, not a Division One school. Um, I had that in here somewhere. I kind of skipped. I realize I have a lot on this, but I I was really in a rabbit hole with this guy. Like I listened to interviews with with him. I was gonna play an interview with him, but I think we've covered him and. I always remember Amy really hates sports. So when we get real deep into it sports, fine. she's probably it's, bored. But yeah. there, I mean, some other people might want to listen to it. So. Yeah, they might. Yeah, so I, I think, she, yeah. She really did kind of shut down during that. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to. She, but. she fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little so bit. I, I try to wake her up a little bit. Drooling. Um, but yeah, so it was pretty uh, an amazing thing with that guy. And yeah. I, I'm kind of practicing for another podcast I'm thinking about down the road is is looking at people's biographies and telling them in a fun way. Anyway, so that's kind of why I delved well, into Well, don't that tell more. people your your ideas is somebody will steal it. Well, I didn't tell them the hook of it. The hook oh. of it, you know, that's a secret weird thing that nobody would think of. But that same day, You Brian, won't have your pants on. No, it's a little more gross than that. Uh, that same day, on March 3rd, Brian is going to tell us something about the music world of 1951. Brian, take it away, my friend. Thanks, Joe. So, uh, March third, nineteen fifty-one. The depending on who you talk to, the first rock and roll record was recorded. Really? Ooh, yes. And this is not what you think. Well, most people don't think of this. I don't think. Yeah. No, because you you'd think Rock Around the Clock. You'd think Bill Haley and the Count. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something like that. You'd be wrong. The song's called Rocket '88, and it's like one of the most influential tracks in rock music history that you've probably never heard of. Wow. So. Um, Rocket 88 was released by Chess Records out of Chicago in 1951, and it was released, uh, the band that performed it, on the label anyway, was uh, Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. Hmm. So it was released actually in April, but the song was recorded March 3rd. How oh, it was recorded but, March 3rd. Uh, uh, it's commonly regarded as the first rock and roll record, but uh, that's not the whole story. There's a whole lot more to it. Mm. Uh, 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 so we'll start here with Jackie Brenston. Now his band, the Delta Cats, gets credit for the the album. He was born August fifteenth, nineteen thirty, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, Clarksdale, you probably know the birthplace the birthplace of the blues. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, Jackie served in the U.S. Army in nineteen forty six uh, for just under one year and returned to Clarksdale and uh, taught himself how to play the tenor saxophone. Uh, it huh. was. In Clarksdale, at the end of 1946, early 1947, that uh, Jackie Brenston connected with a man named Ike Turner. Mm. Oh, we all know Ike Turner. That's right. Now it gets kind of interesting. Yeah. So he connected with Ike Turner in 1950 as a tenor sax player and occasional singer in Ike Turner's band, uh, the the, uh, um, Kings of Rhythm. Oh, Mm. I've never heard of that. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, I don't think I knew much about him before Tina. Right. Sadly. Ike Turner, born November 5th, 1931, also in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, began playing piano and guitar as a child, but couldn't actually read music. Played everything by ear. Wow. Uh, and then formed a group, the Kings of Rhythm. As a teenager, he employed the group as his backing band with uh, the, the various lineups. Musicians kind of came in and out of the, uh, the Kings of Rhythm. Uh, but that was his backing band for literally the rest of Ike Turner's life. Wow, really? Uh, The the Kings of Rhythm started playing around the South and caught the attention of uh, no less than B.B. King, 
Ooh. Who oh. recommended uh, them to Sam Phillips, who owned a small recording studio in Memphis, Tennessee. Wow. So, uh, 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 so literally, by chance, uh, Ike Turner gets connected to B.B. King, of all people. Wow. And Sam Phillips. Now, it's always Sam who you Phillips, know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Sam Phillips name probably sounds familiar to you. You'll recognize his name in a few minutes. Hmm. Uh, Sam Phillips. Um, so the Kings of Rhythms, Kings of Rhythms, plural, uh, first recording was Rocket 88. It was written yeah. and sung by Jackie Brenston, although Brenston admitted the riff and basically the idea for the song came from uh, a big band number from 1948 by Jimmy Liggins called Cadillac Boogie. If you go back and listen to the two, so- the two songs, they are pr- pretty similar. So early are they? Rock and roll really we could probably play too. it. Yeah, I think so. You could play a few minutes I'm, of it. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to slide it in here. Sl- I slide it in right yeah. here. You have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make But let me introduce my new Rocket 88 Yes, it's straight, just one way Everybody likes my Rocket 88 Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along And here is Cadillac Boogie It wouldn't wait. Bought me a long black cat like eight. It's all reached, solid streamlined. I'll joy jumping Cadillacs on time. It's the Cadillac boogie, boogie woogie rolling along. Ugh, 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 guy. Ugh, 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 guy. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And then also uh, Cadillac boogie from uh, Jimmy Liggins in uh, 1948. So really. Uh, Rocket 88 sounds very similar to um, Cadillac Boogie, Boogie, a really early early rock and roll, basically big band music with electric guitars. Yeah. Wow. But both songs about a car. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's funny. What else are you going to sing about that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So. uh, uh, Yeah, those really do sound the same now that we've all heard them just now. Yes. Very, very similar. You can definitely tell the influence. Yeah. Uh, right, so Jackie Branston got credit for writing and singing Rocket 88, although Ike Turner, until he died, said he wrote the music and the oh. band collaborated on the lyrics. Ooh. So, controversy. Shattering there, there may have been a rift developing in the Kings of Rhythm. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, Sam Phillips, the guy who owned the small recording studio in Memphis, uh, recognized the potential of the song, licensed it to Chess Records out of Chicago. Chess Records, of course, a legendary old blues and uh, kind of early rock and roll, early R&B record label out of Chicago. Uh, So uh, Phillips uh, sees the potential in the song, licenses it to Chess Records in Chicago, which released Rocket 88 uh, uh, in April of 1951. But, as I mentioned before, released it under the, under the band name of Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats uh-huh. instead of Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm mm-hmm. featuring Jackie Brenston. Ike Ooh. Turner did not take this very well. Oh, I bet not. <laughs> yeah. That's so, probably why he com- uh, committed abuse. No, <laughs> just there. Right. Like Later he was. On. Come on. He was a good guy, and that made him snap. No. Okay. No. That <laughs> may have been the start. Well, he's one of the he's one of the big biggest examples for me of like 
you know, like, is is it okay to separate the music from the person? Like, he was a terrible person. You're right. But the music is so good, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard yeah. to... Yeah, ugh. that's a hard one. Yeah. A hugely influential artist and apparently an incredible guitar player from what a lot of a lot of folks say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Ike Turner, not happy. He blames uh, Sam Phillips because the, the song, Rocket 88... Uh, reached number one on the U.S. Uh, Billboard R&B chart and sold about half a million copies. Oh, wow. Uh, and it stayed at number one for an unheard of at the time five consecutive weeks on the on Oh, the wow. That is a long time. So yeah. it's a huge hit at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, t- t- Turner and the band were paid $20 each for the song. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but think about it. It's 1951, so $20. Uh, 1951. What did I say? You said seventy one, but that's right. Did I say seventy one? Nineteen fifty one. Right. Twenty dollars is like ten billion dollars. No, no, I, I looked quite. it up. It's yeah. it's two hundred one dollars. <laughs> oh, that's not. Yeah, that's much. not that great. No. Yeah, that's terrible. No, that's Never mind. Yeah, my math is <laughs> off on that. <laughs> for a huge number one hit like that. However, yeah, jeez, that's uh, so real. Turner and the band gets twenty dollars a piece, but uh, Jackie Brenston uh, was paid by Phillips nine hundred and ten dollars. Ooh, oh. now that's. Now yeah. that's uh, money. So that's the equivalent of like I, I did look it up. Uh, it's like I think seven thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah, that's probably so, right. a little bit but, better, but still. but still not great. Mm-mm. Well, a house cost like twelve thousand dollars in nineteen fifty one. So oh like yeah, more that's than half true. Of a house. A house. Like that, yeah, that is true. A house cost. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Woo, crazy. As you might imagine, Ike Turner did not take that very well. No. no. So, uh, but Sam Phillips, it bears mentioning, used his profits from the songs to release, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sam Phillips, it bears mentioning, used his profits from Rocket 88's release t- to launch his studio in Memphis, Tennessee in 1952 called Sun Records. Okay. Yeah, you might I know that. Sun Records yep. as being the label that Elvis Presley recorded. Yep. Oh, right. And years and years Gosh, yeah. So, uh, literally, Rocket 88 launched Ike Turner's Red Hot Rage, oh, and man. also uh, Sun Records. Wow. Oh, that's far-reaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so Rocket 88 may have been the, the kind of the beginning of rock and roll, but it was, it was also the beginning of the end for the Kings of Rhythm. After one more recording session, Brenston left Ike Turner's band to pursue a solo career. Solo career. He later went on to perform in Lowell Fulson. You remember the famous Lowell Fulson? Uh, yeah. He later went he <laughs> to perform in Lowell Fulson's band for two years. He came back to play in Ike Turner's band in 1955. And although he occasionally sang with a band, Ike Turner uh, prohibited him from singing Rocket 88 ever again. <laughs> well, that'll show <laughs> You're never singing that song again. I can't believe uh, he came back. He let him back in the band after all that. That's well, crazy. You know. Yeah. He's. A, He's in his heart. He's a nice guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Uh, in in nineteen uh, in nineteen fifty eight, Brenston played saxophone in the Cobra Sessions with Ike Turner, which produced the singles "Double Trouble" and "All Your Love I'm Is Loving" by Otis Rush. Uh, but by now, uh, Brenston was battling alcohol and uh, continuing to play in local bands. His final recording session was in Chicago with Earl Hooker's band in nineteen sixty three, and released on Mel London's Melon label. Uh, but by now his drinking was really out of control and he left music and returned to Clarksdale working occasionally as a truck driver uh, before he died of a heart attack at at the VA hospital in Memphis on December 15th, 1979. Hmm. 
So, it's always sad uh, when they end up like that. Yeah, and so many of those guys because they just didn't get the rights to their music. The I know the money, they could so have been many set. Of those guys didn't get the rights. There's so many of those. Yeah, uh, really kind of tragic stories. It's sad. Uh, speaking of tragic stories, Ike Turner uh, in 1954 relocated to East St. Louis, which is actually in Illinois. Not yes, in yeah, that's, that's right. That's Amy's um, from there. Not oh, East St. Right? I'm not from East St. Louis. <laughs> oh, no, I'm from St. Louis. <laughs> East St. Louis is in Close. Illinois, and it's very, um, it's it's very low, uh, low income. I guess yeah. you could say. It's, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, so sad. he relocates to East St. Louis in 1954, and the Kings of Rhythm were once again taking the club scene by storm in the area. It was there he met a young singer named Ann Bullock, who he took he took under yep. his wing. Tina Turner uh, brought them. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's brought right. Them, brought Black. her into the Kings of Rhythm and renamed her Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. If you've read her book or seen the movie, "What's Love Got to Do with It," you have a pretty good idea of how that went. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hello, Tina Turner's Turner. cocaine addiction and legal trouble, plus the allegations of domestic violence, plagued him the remainder of his career. Addicted to cocaine, <laughs> addicted to cocaine for at least fifteen years. He was convicted of drug offenses and served 18 months in prison from February 1990 mm-hmm. until September 1991. Spent the rest of the 1990s drug-free, but relapsed in 2004. Mm. I had forgotten that he lived <coughs> until the 2000s. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I, I didn't either. Yeah, yeah I, I think that. I think yeah. I did too. Huh. Uh, near the end of his life, he revived his career with live performances as a frontman and and returned to his blues roots. He produced two albums that were critically well received in the early 2000s. Really, and, uh, I never he, knew that. I had no idea. Uh, but be- uh, became reclusive in the last years of his life. On December 10th, uh, 2007, he told a friend he thought he was dying and would not live until Christmas, and died t- two days later on December 12th, 2007, at the age of 76, at his home in San Marcos, California. Uh, medical examiners later determined he died of a cocaine overdose. Mm. Wow, that does seem like a that's like a butterfly effect thing. Like mm-hmm. I swear he died in the seventies. Yeah, I would have. Mm. I did yeah. not expect huh. to hear he lived until actually really twelve or thirteen years ago. Yeah, uh, the song "Rocket 88" remains a classic, and it depends on who you talk to if if it was the first rock and roll song or not. But you can't argue the significance in rock and roll history. And maybe the most influential rock and roll song, it's entirely possible, as I said before, that you've never heard. Uh, in 2017, mm-hmm. the Mississippi Blues Trail dedicated its 200th marker to Rocket 88 as an influential record. It was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1991, the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1998, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame singles in 2018. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Rocket 88. Yes. Yeah, that was a great job. That's I, a good one. Th- yeah, that... Uh, interesting. That was good, interesting. It yeah, starts yeah, and, and goes and stuff. And and Brian, you were doing a YouTube series about what weren't you about music that that influenced you or something? Yeah. A while so back? I, I had started in the early pandemic when we all thought it was only going to last a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Remember back then. I started, remember those were great days. Mm-hmm. And I I had a. Uh, um, I had my old um, pile of records in a box here, and so I pulled my old pile of records out and uh, just started kind of going through them. And was like, oh, this would be kind of fun to talk about, you know, what was in my record collection and what kind of influence. Oh my, yeah, yeah. Uh, my musical tastes throughout my my youth, mm-hmm. and I think I did five or six of them. Maybe they're on a, a YouTube page called uh, My Record Collection, and uh, then I, I, you know, the pandemic got really serious and it just seemed a little frivolous so mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah that's it's kind of sad yeah. that people don't have record collections anymore yeah, yeah i know well yeah there's a whole i've got a lot of friends recently who are struggling with 
just the fact that their kids are now at an age like middle school and stuff getting into music. Yeah. And they they don't have the same at least they're saying they don't it's not the same like what even when we had deep CDs, CDs you could look at the tapes. art. You yeah. know, you took out the artwork, you looked at the lyrics, you looked yeah. at the there was something to hold and now my friends are like they don't have a thing to hold. Like they don't have a yeah. There's no cover yeah. art. There's not a whole they're not listening to a whole album. They hear one song and they play or they watch YouTube. I mean, you could look at it another way. Just say, yeah, but they also can see every video immediately whenever they want it. You know, they don't have to wait for MTV to play it. So they have some advantages and I think if they really wanted to, they can look I don't at know if it's art, an advantage to get everything you want it the minute you want it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, it used to be uh, um when I was a kid, I, uh, I'm I'm a little bit older than you guys are. I you know, we had to we had to go to the record store. Yeah, you know, I remember like, that. Um you know, new albums dropped on Tuesdays and yeah. so you know, Tuesday evening you'd go to the record store and just spend hours kind of you know, yes. working through the new albums or waiting for the next I do remember, album, like electric light orchestra, or whoever. Yeah, I remember, like yeah, yeah, sifting through the giant it. album yeah. cover. Yes. you know, and you would buy sometimes based on the. It was album so cover. exciting to get a like, new album. Yeah, and like you get a record because of what was on the cover. Sometimes, like you, like, I don't know what this is. I was but like, it this looks one cool. folds out way out, yeah. and it's got all <laughs> yeah. this extra shit inside. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. occasionally you get to see a boob, but that was always good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. yeah I remember yeah, Jake Giles band, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was. Uh, you'd see a boob. I had uh, I had Olivia Newton John's physical. This is when I was probably like six years, seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I loved Olivia oh. Newton John because of Grease. And so I had the Living Newton John's physical and her other, vi- she had another album that I got. And then I think I, you and I talked about this that we both had the Grease record the album. The Grease record album, yes. And, and, and I, I, I would make out with the with the uh, picture of John Travolta. Well, I did the opposite. I made out with Olivia Newton-John, and I would, like, scratch out John Travolta. Like, oh I, would, like, God. colored his eyes in. It's so and, embarrassing now. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing kids are missing out. They're not making out with album covers. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think they'll probably be okay in that respect. Yeah. I used to fold out Thriller, you know, where Michael oh, Jackson yeah. was laying with that, that tiger over his crotch, and then I, like, what you know, are you going to get weird? Let him molest me. Stop no, it. Kidding. No. I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, I had to take it there. No, I didn't do that. Uh, but I did fold it out. It was kind of cool looking. I wanted to be like Michael Jackson. Anyway, we got a lot to get to, so I better jump you know, fast um, or else we'll just go on and on. But thanks, Brian. That was awesome. Yes, that was uh, a great story. That was a story. very good biography and information on Rocket 88. I'm going to listen to it all day, all weekend. Mark, well, you'll, it'll yeah. get old pretty quick for you. Yeah. It will, yeah. There's yeah, yeah. new things. Remember, it's very much of its time. Yeah, that's true. It is a 50s rock song. Uh, March 8th, 1951 is the day that uh, one of the last Confederate Civil War veterans and one of the last slaves died. Oh, my God. Um, Alfred that's not that long Teen ago. Blackburn. I know that's... Reading through this really made me think, geez, a, he was... A, he, and there was he, a slave alive and, in 1951. And he remembered Slavery. being a slave. Like, he yeah. actively remembered. Alfred Teen Blackburn. Now, he was 108 when he died. Uh, he was born April 26, 1842, and died on March 8, 1951. But he was also a Confederate Civil War veteran uh, who received Class B pension he in, was? in North Carolina. Yeah, he fought for the South. Oh, um, wow. He was known throughout Yadkin County, which we're not far from, for his strength, size, and longevity. 
He was the last living person the Yadkin County to have been a slave. He also believed to be one of the last living survivors of slavery in the in the U.S., like I said, who had a clear recollection of it as an adult. Uh, he was born into slavery on the plantation of the Hampton and Cowles families in Yadkin County, North Carolina. Uh, according to family accounts, he was called teen and was the son of Fanny Blackburn, a mixed race Cherokee African held as a slave and Augustus Blackburn, a white plantation. Don't you love how they just pick and choose who's held as a slave? Yeah. Oh, uh, I yep. guess you're, you're, you're dark enough. To Native be. American and, and you're black. So you're, well, can, his, you can be a slave. His father was a white plantation owner who raped her. So oh. it, yeah, it's just, uh, and then he, he, um, yeah. During the Civil War, he served as a body servant of his father, oh. Colonel John Augustus Blackburn of Company F twenty White North master. Carolina Regiment. Yeah. So oh, he and his yeah. brother were both so he, body he servants. No so basically, he had his children who were slave children next to him as body servants. So basically, they would like probably take Ugh. bullets for him and stuff if he was being shot. <clears throat> um, he was a cook, a servant helper for the regiment for almost two years during battles including the first battle of Bull Run. Uh, in a 1938 interview, he said he did not carry a gun during his service because a knife was handier. I would imagine with you know muskets and all that, knives probably were. Um, but after the war, he moved to Davie County and farmed for four years. He returned to Hamptonville. In 1883, he became a contract mail carrier for the U.S. Post Office, supervising other carriers, black and white. And he worked for 60 years carrying the mail on foot and later by horse from Jonesville to Hamptonville, a distance of more than 10 miles every other day. Wow. Um, We're, I'm, I'm teaching right now um, <coughs> about the Civil War to my eighth graders. And like they, it's amazing. Like I was teaching them about the Dred Scott case and how it, it, it didn't helped cause the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he sued, he was... His master took him to Wisconsin and then back to Missouri. And he s- tried to sue his master and say, you took me into a free state, so now I'm, I should be free. Yeah, and right on. And it went all the way to the su- Supreme Court, and they said they basically, the ruling was that African Americans can't sue because they're not citizens. Yeah, isn't that awful? Like. It's insane. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> very shitty. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, uh, for his service during the Civil War, he received a Confederate Class B veteran's pension of $200 per year. So he was paid, uh, more than Ike Turner was for, uh, starting rock and roll, uh, per year, uh, which is kind of funny. Not, that's not funny, but, um, he died at the age of 108 and he's, Buried in the Pleasant Hill Baptist Church Cemetery in Carsontown, a community in Iredell County. Uh, he had 10 children oh, with wow. his wife, Lucy Carson. Um, so he has, you know, there's probably still, I'm trying to think, 10, 51, depending on how late he was having children. Um, but that, yeah, that's a crazy thing. To, it really should slap you in the face and say that it really wasn't that far away. Like people try to claim that we've come. Oh, mm-hmm. we're so far, and it has no remnants. Yeah. It's not. It's a different world. It, you know, it's the last it's really not, slave you know. died in 1951. Yeah, one of the last slaves. I'm sure one somebody could find slaves. another one. But yeah, that he that had a mem- an, like yeah, a, he really an adult memory it. of it, being I mean, a slave. It's just so awful, and you mm-hmm. wonder, you know, it's it's just so ingrained in our history. Um, yep. But 
I think that's the same okay. day you have something. February twenty eighth. We're going to start on February twenty eighth, nineteen forty nine. Oh, February 28, 1949, the same day that Truman Capote's short story collection, A Tree of Night and Other Stories, was published? That mm, same day? Yes. You're getting so early now that there's no television on. So yeah, I can't find books. This. We're going to talk about books. Okay, in Wyoming Township, Michigan, Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck were returning from a nice evening out. Wait a minute, Brian's from Michigan. Do you know where Wyoming Township is, Brian? I do. It's close to Grand Rapids. Boom. Oh, there we go. Side of the state. Boom. So they were returning from a nice evening out, enjoying a movie with refreshments, popcorn oh, and soda. Oh, yeah. One could easily imagine the couple smiling, throwing an arm around one another when the wind picks up, or yeah. recalling a favorite scene from the film. The pair would make it home, but within a few hours, be alarmed at an early morning knock at the door. It was the local police. Uh-oh. You see, they're... Home was not actually theirs. It was the home of 41-year-old Delphine Downing and her two-year-old child, Rynell. A welfare check was called on the family by neighbors, and authorities soon discovered something sinister was afoot. Police would discover the two buried in shallow graves in the basement, both meeting violent ends. Raymond and Martha were quickly arrested and escorted to the police station where they were interviewed. A confession was eventually made, and police soon found out that this was not their first time the pair had committed crimes together. Wait, what am I missing? They weren't, you said they were watching a movie. They came home from a movie and they came to the wrong house? They, they had broken into a house and killed the woman and her child that lived there oh, and put, that, her in, was, put them in the basement. Oh, they were in the basement. I thought it was the other two that were in the basement. No. I was confused as to who was in the basement. Okay, sorry. I'm not very good at listening. <laughs> so Raymond Fernandez was born on December 17th, 1914. Oh, he was born the same day that U.S. President Woodrow Wilson signed the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act that was initially introduced by U.S. Representative Francis Burton Harrison, the courts interpreted this to mean that physicians could now prescribe narcotics to patients in the course of normal treatment, but not for the treatment of addiction. So although technically illegal... God, there was a day when they treated addiction with narcotics. Can you imagine that? <laughs> although technically... Oh, you, I'm sorry about your alcoholism. Here's some heroin. Let's see if that perks you up. At this time, although technically illegal for a purpose of distribution and use, the distribution, sale, and use of cocaine was still legal for registered companies and individuals. Yeah, that's crazy. Isn't that weird? Well, it wasn't uh, Coca-Cola was basically liquid. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yes, 1914. Yep. So um, he was born in Hawaii to Spanish parents. Yeah. He remained in the States as a child and would move from Hawaii to Connecticut and then as an adult, he would go to Spain, where he served in World War II, married, and had multiple children. No, no number was given. No number. Raymond would grow tired of his life in Spain and leave his family for the States once more. Which, that's, that's just lovely. I can't even imagine somebody feeling like they could just pick up and leave everything. You know? Like their children and their mm-hmm. spouse. That just blows my mind. I don't know how what Some kind of person you would yeah. have to be to be able to do that. Yeah. Anyway, while on this voyage, he sustained a traumatic head injury. What do we know about those? TBI. They yeah. cause murders. That's right. I mean, murders. A lot of murderers have had TBIs. That's right. Well, I, I used to work with people with developmental disabilities, and some had traumatic brain injuries, and they, some oh, of them were mean. I yeah. had one guy, like, yeah. I, my job was to take him to doctor's appointments and stuff, and I'd call him, and every time I call him, he'd start screaming and calling me a asshole and a pussy and all this stuff like really and then he'd call five minutes later and say, i'm sorry you're not an asshole you're not a pussy uh but i'm, I'm not fucking going <laughs> and that, to the doctor. Yeah. that was your boss last week yeah I no. think, did that to you no this was a guy a long time ago but you know, tbi like they could 
I could see him killing somebody. Mm-hmm. Quick to quick to anger. So uh, Raymond remained hospitalized for some time, but would eventually be discharged. Those close to Raymond claimed he had changed after this event, and to back the claim up, Raymond began committing crimes immediately. He was arrested right after his TBI. Yep. Immediately, yep. Wow. He was arrested for stealing clothes and served a year in prison. He was exposed to the voodoo religion while incarcerated and believed the religion gave him immense power over women, making wow. him irresistible. Huh. Okay, now we're going to switch to Martha, the, the gal that was with him. Yeah. Martha Beck was born on May 6, 1920. Oh, she was a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. She, she was born the same day that Mike O'Dowd, the world middleweight boxing champion, lost his title to a relatively unknown challenger, Johnny Wilson, mm-hmm. in a 12-round decision in Boston. The defeat of O'Dowd was a big surprise, a wire service reporter wrote, for Wilson has been boxing no better than second-rate boxers in New England cities. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wilson had only been in three professional bouts before meeting O'Dowd. All right, you're done. Oh, no, you know what's amazing? I don't know if your if your listeners realize this, but Joe is doing all that right off the top of his head. It's right. all just like, like no, not using any notes. I'm just, just searching in my head. Like that's all the same that day that happened. Those facts, yeah, really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I did know a guy that could do that. He had autism. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. All right. So uh, she was born in Milton, Florida. She came from a strict upbringing and suffered teasing due to her weight and appearance. So she was a heavy gal, heavier gal, and she was not attractive. Aww. She developed early. So you say. So <laughs> when you when girls develop early, they they have all kinds of problems. Oh really? Yeah, psychologically. Like, oh, psychologically. Yes. Yeah, I guess that would happen. Um, and she claimed her brother had molested her. When she told her mother, she was beaten by her mother. Ugh. This oh, wait, her mother beat her for telling for, her that yep. she was molested? Yeah, told her it was her fault. That seems like a bad response. I don't have kids. Yeah. Right. You, I'm thinking generally, that's, that's frowned upon, Brian. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's, that's generally fine. frowned upon. So this led to things becoming even stricter within the house. Martha simply endured the hard times, and when able, she moved to the opposite end of the country to California. Wow. While there, she held a number of odd jobs while she studied to become a nurse. She excelled in her studies, and once finished, found a job as a nurse on a military base. While there, she began seeing some of the officers. Soon, Martha became pregnant. When Uh-oh. alerting the father, the man attempted to kill himself rather than marry Martha. <laughs> oh, wow. She must be homely yeah. looking if, yeah. that, if that's the case. Yeah, she's nice to hang out with for a night, but if I got to know, yeah. well, you know, not going to. Yeah. To be fair, that was my reaction when you told me you were pregnant with our first. I, I know. Like, that I'm going to kill myself. I remember I'm that. I'm not staying here. So no, this notion kidding. threw Martha into a dark mindset, and she decided to move back to Florida to have the child. So okay. then she goes back to Florida, claims the father was fighting overseas but died in battle, is what she tells everybody. Okay, that's a good story. Shortly after her first child, Martha became pregnant again. This time, the father married Martha, but the marriage only lasted six months. Oh. Now unemployed and a mother of two, Martha was starting to get desperate. She felt unwanted and longed for a husband who would love her. Yep. She began to obsess over romance novels and magazines. At a certain point... It became so difficult for her to meet new people, she decided to start writing to Lonely Heart ads, which were like, whatever now, you know, Craigslist ads or something. Yeah, I was thinking she should start writing to prisoners. So many of these other women write to prisoners. Yeah. She failed to mention in her writings that she had two children. Uh Uh-oh, they always leave that out. Slipped her mind. Yeah. Yeah. A few weeks weeks after starting, Martha got a response from Raymond Fernandez, who over the past few years had taken up conning women via personal ads. So now now they're meeting. Yeah, so that's a perfect match, these two. Oftentimes, the woman would not report the crime out of fear or or embarrassment. So that's how he got away with it all the time. 
And now, just weeks. This is, I'm sorry. No, what, go ahead. What year are we talking about here? So when? when 19, uh, four, let's see. I'm trying to think of what it would be. Late 20s, maybe? Early 30s? No, yeah, in the 30s. Yeah, because she was born in 20. Yeah. And so, and so she's, she's got to be. She, she, yeah, we're in the 30s. Or 40s. Yeah. 40s. Or it could be right. in the 40s. It could be, yeah. Yeah, because. But. Yeah. Regardless, mental health care probably not. Of course. Definitely mental health care was not great. Yeah. So just just weeks prior, Fernandez had gone on a cruise with an unsuspecting Jane Thompson to Spain. Raymond, Jane, and Raymond's estranged wife traveled through the country until one morning Jane was found dead. It was a sudden death, but an autopsy was not performed. Mary or many believe she was Raymond's first victim as he went on to forge a will claiming ownership of her property and money. Ah. Raymond saw Martha as the perfect next target, thinking a nurse would have some money saved or some property. The two went back and forth for weeks, Raymond asking for a lock of Martha's hair, Martha happily obliging. Weird. Martha found this romantic, but Raymond only used it as part of his voodoo ritual. Oh, yes. That's why he had a lock of hair. That's right. Yeah. In December of 1947. So there we go. That's not weird. Now we're in December 1947. 1947. I don't think it was. She's 27 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. She's 27. Yeah. So she's been. I don't think. I'll say. I don't think it was unusual for people to send a lock of hair back then. Right. Like, that was a thing you're Usually your sure. pubes, I think. I don't know if it was your pubes. <laughs> but we found, like, my grandmother, several times we've moved her, and there was lots of, like, different, like, locks of hair set aside sure. and stuff. It was like, yes. what the hell Weird. is wrong with grandma? But I think everybody did that. They used they to make pictures hair. out of dead people's hair. They would take the de- they'd cut off the deceased hair, yeah. and they would braid it into these elaborate designs, and they would frame it. People were fucked up in the 40s and 50s. I, I, I mean, like this she, was more probably. My grandmother had envelopes full of people's of hair. Like this was yeah, so and so's hair, 1949, and so and so. Keep your kids' teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. weird too. Yeah, we have some of them. <laughs> I do. We we kept some of their teeth at the beginning. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. you you know the the tooth fairy comes. Yeah, you can't pitch it or they'll spoiler find it. alert for our listeners. But the tooth fairy is not real. Careful. And what? so us parents uh, have to take the tooth and give them money. And what do you do with the tooth? That's right. Okay, so in December of 1947, the two would finally meet when Raymond decided to pay Martha a visit. He was shocked at the children and maintained that he loved her regardless, <laughs> despite leaving early and su- suddenly. Okay. He tried letting her go gently, but she remained persistent, threatening to kill herself if he left her. Yeah. With little choice, Raymond ah. continued his correspondence with Martha. So That's she turned week. the tables on him. Yep. She was. That's yeah. right. So she, she out-crazed him. Mm-hmm. She out-crazed him. She did. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> she did. He thought he was getting a rich nurse. Yeah. So, nope. yep. Yeah. He got a crazy. That's right. Someone crazier her. than you. Good for her. Yeah. So when Mar- at work, Martha would brag and insist she was going to be married soon. And then she was suddenly fired from her job. And she saw this as a blessing in disguise because now nothing was keeping her in Florida. Shortly after her dismissal, she packed up her kids and belongings showing up unexpectedly at Raymond's front door. Uh-oh. This was trying This was trying for Raymond, and he finally came clean with her. He told her about his con game, luring and preying on lonely women. To most, this would be abhorrent, but Martha refused to leave his side. In fact, she wanted to help him any way she could. Wow. The first thing Raymond had Martha do to test her loyalty was get rid of her kids. Wow. She soon abandoned them, uh-huh. dropping the two off at the Salvation Army. Oh, boy. You can do that? <laughs> Martha Next passed the old TVs. Yeah. Yes, and the underpants you don't want. Yeah. Martha passed Raymond's first test. He knew she would be loyal. 
Over the next few months, the pair would convince women to let them move in or move into the couple's apartment, Martha disguising herself as Raymond's sister. The oh. pair would go from city to city, state to state, looking for any potential targets. Well, and I think this really helps him because I think right. you, autom- trust. you trust a woman more. Yes. And if a guy's with a woman, you're going to automatically, well, he must be okay yes, with a woman. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. While doing so, continuously perusing the Lonely Hearts section of various magazines. During their crime wave, one of the victims would be Myrtle Young. Raymond married Myrtle in 1948 with his sister, quote-unquote, present. Wow, really? She, that was only a year later, by the way. Yeah. She, yeah. she never she left them well. alone for fear they would consummate the relationship. So she was always in there. Oh, your sister won't go away. Uh, no. God, like, she would weird. not leave them alone even f- at night for a minute because she didn't want them oh, to have sex. That's so go, weird. Girl. Myrtle had enough and grew angry, but Raymond calmed her with a number of sleeping pills, knocking her out, causing her eventual overdose. Oh, my gosh. It is said that the... What a weird situation. I know. That the pair carried her to a bus bound to her home of Arkansas and arrived still unconscious. She was admitted into a hospital where she died a few days later. The next victim would be 66-year-old Janet Fay in January of 1949. Again, Martha tried her best to ensure the two did not have sex, but one night caught them in bed naked. Wait, she was 66 years old? Yes. And so he's like, how old's he? Like he's he he was born in 1914. She's 27. God, you're making me do He's in his 30s, so. yeah, right? Well, they don't care. They're just trying to um, take I know, money. but like the 66-year-old woman with a fort. Uh, 35 year old. Yeah, it was a different 40. time, though, too. Most 33 year old guys look like they were 60. So. That's yes, true, true back then. Yeah, yeah, everybody did. I really want to get, I want to find some old magazines and read the Lonely Heart section. I know. That would be a podcast in its own. That probably. would be. That's interesting. So they, so she, calls, she catches them in bed together naked, and she flies into a blind rage and begins striking Janet with a ball-peen hammer multiple times. Uh, while she's naked? A scarf was used as a tourniquet wound tightly around the neck. Uh. Raymond leapt into action, cleaning the room and disposing of the body. The pair bought a trunk and dumped the body inside, leaving it at Raymond's actual sister's home for a few days. Ugh. After retrieving the trunk, they buried the body in the basement of a home and covered it with cement. Afterwards, the couple did their best to deplete all of Janet Faye's savings and sent f- fake letters to her family. Ugh. So the two were going broke fast. Neither of them had savings or actual jobs and needed a new target. Raymond happened upon a woman in Michigan, Delphine Downing. The killers Do you were, know her, Brian? You're from Michigan. I, d- I did not know her. No. <laughs> the killers were invited <laughs> to Normally stay with her. Normally we do all know each other. Though. That's yeah, right. So I thought, all you Michiganders. That's right. <laughs> the killers were invited to stay with her in late February 1949. After a few days, Delphine... Yeah, yeah. Delphine all grew suspicious of their intentions and became loud. Raymond decided again to dose her with sleeping pills, and she soon knocked out. This caused panic within her young daughter, Rynell. This caused Martha to panic and began choking the young child. Oh, my gosh. The child survived, but large red marks were clearly visible on her neck. Raymond knew if the mother saw these, she would call police, so they decided something had to be done. He went to Delphine and shot her point blank in the head. They would linger in the home a few more days before killing the young Rynell, drowning her in a tub filled with dirty water. The two were buried in the basement side by side. After killing the child, the pair were arrested the next day, but not before taking in a movie. (sighs) What? <laughs> Raymond quickly can because really remember yeah. yeah it's the like late forties. What else do you have to do? I really want to catch that old. picture. Mm-hmm. I want really wanted to see that picture. No Netflix. Yeah, that's right. Raymond quickly confessed to all of his crimes, initially claiming a body count of seventeen, but would eventually claim that was false. 
He felt safe in Michigan because there was no death penalty, but failed to realize how easily he could have been tied to the death of Janet Fay in New York. They were yeah. soon extradited to New York and put on um, trial for Janet Fay's death. From the beginning, the Lonely Hearts Killers case was highly publicized due to the sex and the appearance of Martha Beck. Both took the stand and argued why they should be given life, but the jury would not be swayed. On August 22nd, 1949... Oh, the same... Oh, go ahead. (laughs) August 22nd, 1949, (laughs) the same day that the horror comedy film Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff, starring Abbott and Costello and Boris Karloff, was released? Yes. They um, were both sentenced to death by electric chair. Raymond's last meal was an onion omelet, french fries, chocolate, and a Cuban cigar. His last words would be, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What do the public know about love? (laughs) Martha's not much. Yeah. Yeah, Martha's last meal was fried chicken, french fries, and salad. Her last words were, my story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. I'm not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. I'm a woman who had a great love and always will have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feelings for Raymond. Are you kidding? She had a salad for her last meal? Both, who's both, who's going to eat a salad? I know. Both and, were executed on March and 8th. And fried chicken, which is oh, on brand. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of a little of this, kind of a little of that. Yeah. <laughs> a bucket of chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Both were executed on March 8th, 1951. The oh, they were ex- the Lonely Hearts Killers. Oh, the end of, they were both executed the same day that the International Table Tennis Federation bans Egypt for refusing to play Israel? That same day? Yes. <laughs> and that's the story. That was a that was good a one. That, yeah, was that was a really great. good one. Yeah, I thought that, that was a good one. So she, born, you said 19... She was born in 1920. She was born in 1920. And he was born in 14, yeah. Yeah. Executed... 1951. 51. She's 31. She lived a life. Yeah. She, she, she passed yes. a lot into those 31 years. That's she the, sure did. There should be a movie on that one. There's probably, I think there's several. Is there? The yeah. Lonely Hearts Killers. Like, yeah. most of yours, I just want to throw up afterwards and take a shower. <laughs> uh, but this one, I'm really into this one. Like, I, I do, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I do want to throw up and take a shower, but I also <laughs> kind of interested in it. It was really good. Huh. And this is going to be a good episode. Yeah, of course if it is. If only my stuff can be my next few things. So we're still only in March 12th. I know. So we got to move it along. I'll burn through these fast. Okay. I'll just touch on take these. Take some of these. Yeah. Take them out. Monday, March 12th, 1951. Hank Ketchum's best selling comic strip, Dennis the Menace, appeared in newspapers across the U.S. for the first time. Okay. And I don't know if you guys know this, but this is a crazy thing. This is one of the things that makes me think the world is is a simulation because according to a website called plagiarismtoday.com mm-hmm. <clears throat> that same day in uh, March March 12 1951 uh, was the first publication of a different comic called Dennis the Menace in the UK uh, that same exact day how are two separate comics entitled huh. Dennis the Menace going on sale that were completely different in the UK comic Dennis was more uh, it was inside a comic book, not a newspaper, but he was more evil, like an evil guy with black hair. And Den- mm-hmm. this Dennis the Menace was a blonde kid who was kind of more mischievous. Yeah. But it was a really odd case. And they both, they found, they didn't really know about each other because, you know, we didn't have the same media and everything. And it took a while before they found out about each other. But when they did find out about each other, there was no... There's no way they could have known about each other. One could couldn't copy off each other, hmm. and they both decided that their comic strips are so different. They let the other one just do their thing, um, and that the UK Dennis the Menace ended up being being called uh, 
Dennis and Nasher uh, after his dog. He kind of changed it after a while. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, no, and no legal action was taken against either one. Wow. Uh, it just seems like a weird thing. Like, how could it be on the same day in 1951 hmm. that they yeah, both I came out? I can I mean, you know, you can sort of understand. It's kind of like, like, like you know, when two comedians kind of think of the same joke at mm-hmm. roughly the same time. Yeah, it's, it's that you know, it's usually a fairly obvious joke, and it's kind of parallel thinking, and everyone just kind of writes it off. But, but that, yeah, that's a super specific thing to be released on exactly. The same day. <laughs> yeah, so it is. Specific. It is. I kind of thought like Dennis the Menace was probably a thing. People, if your name was Dennis, was people wondering. probably called you that. It's probably yeah. a common thing. That would make sense. Uh, but still, that's day. weird. That the same day. Um, yeah. And Tuesday, March 13th, uh, just a quick birthday I'm going to throw in here, even though Amy hates him, and I'm going to play the theme song, and I'm going to edit that in later. Uh, Fred Berry was born in St. Louis, Missouri. You know who Fred Berry is? Is it Chuck Berry? Nope. He's not related to Chuck Berry. Darn it. Brian, do you know who Fred Berry is? Fred Berry, he was was, uh, Gomer Pyle's sidekick. No, close. He was a member of the Los Angeles-based dance troupe, The Lockers, uh, with with whom. I I didn't get that. Well, well, that's not the that's (laughs) not the biggest thing he is. Oh, but I didn't. This is the part about him that I didn't know. He was in a dance troupe called The Lockers, Mm -hmm. with whom he appeared on the third episode of Saturday Night Live in '75. He was also on Soul Train. Oh, dancing and like oh, was he like popping like he yeah he was oh. rerun. There it is. He achieved there it more is. widespread fame playing the character Freddie Rerun Stubbs on the ABC on What's Happening. I had no idea he was an actual dancer, and so yeah, you can find video of him on Soul Train and his whole dance troupe is there dancing, and he's the only fat guy. And then there's mm-hmm. another one where he's on Soul Training. You remember when they did the line in Soul Train? Like, yeah, two people come down, they dance in the middle. Yeah, he. <laughs> He, he, I think, originated, and you can find this on YouTube too. The slow mo, like he and another gal, they're dancing in slow motion, and, oh he, my he's, gosh. and he's the only fat guy again. But I had no idea that Fred Berry was a dancer, so I had to bring that up. And I fell down this whole rabbit hole on the internet. Like I found his daughter, who is she started an advertising agency, and she's like trying to capitalize on being his daughter. Um, anyway, he was married six times to four different mm-hmm. women. Uh, the first two women he married twice each. Oh my goodness! Uh, he has three children: DeShannon, Portia, and Freddie. And so I think it's Portia who has an advertising company. And then I believe he hooked up with another woman, and they they uh, killed a woman. They killed yeah, that's a woman right. Enough, the, yeah. The, that's, it's, yeah. And her daughter. He yep. sadly passed away. Uh, he had he had all kinds of health problems and drug yeah. abuse and stuff. Um, and then I only have two more quick things: uh, March fourteenth, nineteen fifty one. On Einstein's 72nd birthday, was it March 14th? Yeah. Albert Einstein, I might as well play the birthday. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Yes. Birthday. But United Press photographer Arthur Sass was trying to persuade Albert Einstein to smile for the camera. Oh, he stuck his tongue out. Yes. Now yeah, you, got, you got it. But having smiled for photographers many times that day, Many times that day, Einstein stuck out his tongue instead, and this photograph became one of the most popular ever taken of Einstein, often used in merchandise, depicting him in a lighthearted sense. That's right. Einstein loved that photo so much that he requested them to give him nine copies for his personal use, hmm. one of which he signed for a reporter. On June 19, 2009, the original signed photograph was sold at auction for $74,000. Wow. $74,324. A record for an Einstein picture. 
And then the last thing was something I was going to put a little music to. This is Ken Carpenter speaking from a special booth on the stage of the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood. The house itself is jammed with 3,000 people, and outside, Hollywood Boulevard is swarming with other thousands. And small wonder, 1950's most distinguished film achievements are about to be honored by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. This is Oscar night. This is The Money Run. Sitting on my left in the booth is actor John Lund. During the course of tonight's show, he will chime in to describe the action and keep radio listeners abreast of what's going on here in the theater. Right now, the overture is about to begin. The Academy Awards Orchestra, Alfred Newman conducting. March 29th, 1951, the 23rd Academy Awards Ceremony awarded Oscars for the best films of 1950. All About Eve received 14 Oscar nominations, beating the previous record of 13 set by Gone with the Wind. Sunset Boulevard became the second film with nominations in every acting category not to win a single one after My Man Godfrey. I was going to turn this down a little bit while I do this. Yeah. All About Eve was the second film after Mrs. Miniver, 1942, to receive five acting nominations. It also became the first to receive multiple nominations in two acting categories, and the first and to date only film to receive four female acting nominations, two each for Best Actress in a Leading Role and Best Actress in a Supporting Role. None was successful, losing to Judy Holliday in Born Yesterday and Josephine Hall in Harvey, respectively. That was Butterfly McQueen that they just showed. It was? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking that, too. I mean, when, mm-hmm. when, yeah, it, uh, just right before that, all I could think of was look at all the white people. I yeah, know. Everybody's There's white. one yeah. black person. It was interesting to... I'm not going to play it because it goes on forever. But I kind of like the kind of 50s music mm-hmm. and all that. And, uh, oops, now i got to stop it. But the... Um, it, it's kind of interesting. I thought about playing it, but, but it's pretty long. The you know they start with the guy who introduces Fred Astaire as the MC is you know, some writer, but he, he kind of gives you like a an overview of life in 1950 and 51 mm-hmm. and all the things that are going on with the Korean War, and it's kind of interesting just to like put you in the context of what year we're talking yeah. about. But it kind of goes on very long, and we've had a long episode, so I cut that out. But I just thought it would be neat to have that little background music as I talk about the awards. But Yeah. Yeah, so Born Yesterday was the kind of the big winner, even though All About Eve – I mean, All About Eve was the big winner, but Born Yesterday was the actress yeah. Uh, nomination. But, yeah, so we're – Brian, we uh, found these guys on Podcorn, these Scottish – these young Scottish kids that are, like, right out of college – they have uh, a podcast called Who the Fuck Is, uh, where they kind of focus every year on an actor. Uh, not every year. Every but season. Every season on an actor. They just and they just talk their about movies their movies. And they, they're really cool. knowledgeable about their movies. But we had them as a guest, and we did Scottish timelines where we talked about things that happened in Scotland in the 50s. And we guest on their podcast once a, a season – and they let a, they pick a movie from whatever year we're in. So now that we're 1951, we did 1950. We did all about Eve. So we watched it and then we talked about it with them, uh, and just how much you know we liked it or didn't like it or whatever. And so now we're going to be on next week on theirs. We're uh, we're doing the 1951 Best Picture, American in uh, Paris, an American right? in Paris, which I oh, wow. okay. I hate that movie. Oh, you I, might I, like it. It's I a musical. It. I I don't like musicals much. Um, so, but it's kind of neat that we we got to talk about all about Eve in really in cool. detail, yeah. and those guys are cool, and so we've we just hit it off with those guys and just laughing our butts off talking to them, and 
uh, they're kind of our same kind of sense of humor. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. Yep. But that brings us to the end yes. of March. And thanks, Brian, for being Thank here with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was so much fun, you guys. Uh, anytime. I'm yeah. Happy to happy to hear about all kinds of death and mayhem and. I know. <laughs> yeah, and actually, Domestic violence and everything else. Yeah, you. I mean, yours was very interesting and very good. So we'd love to have you back again if you like. Yeah, if you had fun. Cool. And thanks for building the network. I think it's really cool. I'm excited to contact. I've started sort of getting ready to reach out to some of the other people on the network to try to cross promote each other's stuff. Yeah. And have them now that we're having guests. Um, yeah, we want to have more people on the network and guests. And once COVID's over, I hope you do another mixer where we all can meet each other. Yeah, I, I, I really want to do that. I don't know necessarily when that will be, obviously. But yeah, but yeah. we've got a lot of people since we've added so many shows over the last yeah. you know, 12 months. And we're still continuing to kind of add shows that uh, definitely you know, to, to kind of get everyone together when we can do it safely. And, yeah. And, Kind of reconnect. And Brian helped do the whole Charlotte Podcast Festival, too, which is a, Charlotte's kind of becoming a big podcast town, so it's cool. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. That is awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, Brian. Tell and Tara that oh. we said hi. Yeah, Tara, we love her. Tell Tara we love her. Yes. Tara, I will do Tara, that. Tell we Definitely. Love her. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody, yeah, for listening. asking about you. Thanks, oh, guys. she was? Yep. Thanks yeah. for listening. Subscribe, rate, and review. Time to get out of here, Chuck Read Barry. all of Tara's books. She's an author. Um, so Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We should have her on. We should have her on. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, she can plug her books. Duh. Why didn't we think of that? There we go. Yeah, well, we will email her right, or Facebook her right away. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. We're going to let Dale through, and it's, it's all over now. All right. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. And Fred Berry. Fred Berry. Thanks for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Send us money. Uh, I am. I am. I have an idea. Oh, I do want to say real quick before we go. We. I know we already outroed, <laughs> but I have recorded some things that I am going to actually. We've had a Patreon page forever. We've just never done anything with it. But I now know what I'm going to put on there. I'm recording a podcast with my 12 year old daughter. Who on the first season she was a nine year old daughter. We had on a couple episodes, and she's hilarious. And we have these funny talks where she actually opens up and talks about things and she had me cracking up and we're going to release those as special patreon american timelines episodes oh there you go uh, and, awesome. uh yeah so that'll be out in the next few months so if you want to listen to me and my daughter bs uh you have to pay like a dollar so yeah thanks for listening know. everybody watch out for that I patreon yep thanks all right all right bye bye yep as a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Make me some cookies, bitch. Thank you. Love you. <laughs>